0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the onslaught from Big Pharma with 1,600 lobbyists dispatched to Congress along with deceptive ad campaigns on TV to water down provisions in the Build Back Better Social Infrastructure Bill, which will result in a new $35 per month cap on insulin not beginning until 2023 and a $2,000 cap for all out-of-pocket drug spending for seniors that won't be implemented until 2024, along with Medicare negotiating with pharmaceutical companies to lower prices of drugs that won't happen until 2025, with a full phase-in coming in 2028. Joining us is Jonathan Cohn, a senior correspondent at the Huffington Post, who was formerly a senior editor at the New Republic and an executive editor of the American Prospect, the author of Sick, The Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price, and The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. We will discuss the advertising, lobbying and political donations tsunami from the pharmaceutical industry aimed at killing Biden's and the Democrats' bill. Then we'll investigate the history of combating inflation with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, whose latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal – a plan of action and renewal. We'll discuss his three-part series of articles at Forbes, War on Inflation, and FDR's pairing of government and industry that could be replicated today to enable our country to quickly restore self-sufficiency, reclaim global industrial leadership, and prevent domestic price inflation by massively leveraging up the nation's productive capacity. Then finally, with Beto O'Rourke entering the governor's race in Texas, along with Republican Operative Matthew Dowd running as a Democrat for Lieutenant Governor, we will speak with Matt Engel, who directs the the Texas Democratic Trust and the Lone Star Project. He has served as Executive Director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and we will discuss what it will take for the Democrats to overcome gerrymandering and voter suppression in the Lone Star State that is trending blue. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, Jonathan Cohn, a senior correspondent at the Huffington Post, who was formerly a senior editor at the New Republic and an executive editor of the American Prospect. He's the author of Sick, the Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price, and The Ten-Year War, Obamacare, and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. And his latest article at the Huffington Post is, Republicans are spreading a new lie about Joe Biden's childcare plan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Cohn.
1: Thank you for
0: having me. And speaking of uh, spreading lies or disinformation or spin or propaganda or whatever you want to call it, there's quite an advertising blitz going on, funded by Big Pharma, although under headings of Americans for apple pie or whatever, you know, those kind of milk toast headings that they have for these old, these front groups. And some vulnerable Democrats, their districts are getting blasted. Representative Andy Kim, a Democrat of New Jersey, his constituents are getting mailers telling them that Andy Kim wants to prevent Medicare patients from getting the drugs that they need. And, of course, Andy Kim is one of the people pushing for allowing Medicare to bargain for to lower prices for prescription drugs. And on TV now, you're seeing all kinds of advertising with uh, seniors talking about socialized medicine, and we can't allow... America to turn into canada where people are restricted for getting drugs so is this working do you think are they peeling off democrats or at least they're intimidating them
1: yeah well we'll see right i mean we have to, they have to they have to still vote on, you know there's a there's a tentative agreement in place among democrats on what their prescription drug plan should look like um the house has not yet voted on it the senate has not yet voted on it it's very touch and go um they, they negotiated for the entire year they've been negotiating on this piece to try to get something that could get everybody on board. Um, you know, we'll find out when they vote whether or not the intimidation has worked. I think what we can say definitively is that pressure from the drug industry in all kinds of forms and lobbying, also the threat of these ads, which they are now putting on the air and they have been for some time definitely played a role in shaping this legislation, because the proposal that's now before Congress is much smaller, much less ambitious than where the conversation started. And that's because the leader, Democratic leaders had to make concessions to members to the, within their own party, within the Democratic party, who were either very close to pharma, dependent on pharmaceutical industry uh, donations, or at the very least, feared precisely these sort of, t- of attacks.
0: Well, apparently, a f- farmer has been spending $23 million on lobbying through the first nine months of 2021, and they've deployed 1,600 lobbyists, outnumbering members of Congress, three to one. So they're certainly pulling out all the stops. And obviously, in the Senate, I think it's pretty clear that the one senator that seems to be holding it up a lot is Kirsten Cinema, and uh, on Monday she was attending the White House signing of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, where she said that in spite of the fact that ninety something like ninety eight percent of Democrats in the House and Senate support the Build Back Better plan, and she described it as noise, which I don't think goes down well. So. Is there anything that can be done with that kind of obstruction? Because obviously one vote in the Senate can tank the whole thing, and we're not even sure about where Joe Manchin stands on the social infrastructure bill. It seems like every other day he comes up with another objection, and the latest one, of course, being inflation.
1: Yeah, well, you know, this is the the challenge of trying to pass ambitious legislation when you have ultra thin major- majorities, you know, not, you know, in the house, right. I mean, it's just a handful of seats. So Nancy, you know, on any given vote, Nancy Pelosi can only lose three, four Democrats, depending on who's there and who isn't. And then in the Senate, it's a 50 50 Senate. Literally every single individual democratic Senator has a veto and any one of them can kill uh, legislation. Now the assumption is mostly they are after all Democrats. They identify as democrats most of them say they want president biden to succeed i think they all realize they in the long run do benefit if the democratic brand is doing well and then you know presumably they got into office to do some of the things that the democrats want to do so that is a powerful motivation to vote yes but we've seen this throughout there are reservations joe manchin has about the size of the plan and individual proposals and then you mentioned kirsten sinema she is not the only democratic senator who has raised objections to the prescription drug plan. But at the end of the day, she was the one who was the the last holdout from everything that's been reported and everything that I have heard. And, you know, at the end of the day, they were negotiating with her. And it was, you know, yeah, basically as 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 we, you were just saying, I mean, the entire Democratic caucus in the Senate was on board with this plan, but and they'd already made a bunch of concessions, but she still wanted more, and they finally got to a place where she said, okay, yes, and and that's where the plan is now, and everyone's just hoping that holds.
0: Well, it's apparently polls, though, uh, particularly the provision to allow Medicare to bargain down the price of drugs through bulk buying. That polls very well with the electorate. And after all, Donald Trump pushed for prescription drug reform as well. So it's incredibly popular. So that's the part I don't understand, is how can a popular program be scuttled or neutered or reduced or watered down by just one person. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't
1: it? It is. I mean, look, I think everybody understood going into this that passing prescription drug reform is difficult, first and foremost, because the drug industry lobby is literally the most powerful lobby in Washington. I mean, that's a subjective judgment, obviously, but I think you could make that call. Lots of other people have said that Um, they're extremely powerful. They donate to lots of politicians. They have influence that way. They employ an army of lobbyists, as you said. They can put money on the air. They fund uh, patient groups. They do grassroots. I mean, they are just very, very powerful, and you're up against that. Um, What's been interesting and what makes cinema a bit of an enigma uh, is that, you know, going in, everybody knew there were going to be a handful of senators who were difficult to convince on this. The one you always hear about was Robert Menendez from New Jersey. And, and that's because it's something, I forget the exact number, but I think it's something like 16 of the 20 largest pharmaceutical companies in the world have headquarters in New Jersey. And he's a Senator from New Jersey. So this is a, a local politics issue for him, right? I mean, it's you know it's, it's companies in his state. So you sort of would expect him to be uh, difficult on that. And they had to make some a lot of concessions for him to get this through. cinema is not from a, a pharmaceutical state. As you said, the issue polls well. Uh, last I checked, there were a whole lot of senior citizens in Arizona who uh, are facing high drug costs and so very much want this relief. Politically, it's quite, and, and, and you know, and she's in a tough, you know, she's, it's, it's a swing state. So you would think the ability to, to, to grab a popular issue would play well with her. I mean, what's been fascinating is there are so many other Democrats in vulnerable places, Uh, especially in the House. You have a bunch of House Democrats in these very tightly contested districts with lots of Republican voters. And they are like 100% on board with this prescription drug plan because it's so popular. And cinema, like no one can figure out, like why is this? The, The only explanation anyone can come up with I mean, there's two explanations. One is this is, you know, she's made a substantive decision. She thinks this is the right thing to do. And obviously that's always possible. And I, I, I tend to think for everyone who takes a position in politics, there's always some element of that, but it's, it's really hard not to notice the amount of support she's gotten from the drug industry and to wonder whether that money or simply the connections she's made through that and who is talking to her uh, through that is shaping her views.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Cohn, who is a senior correspondent at the Huffington Post, who was formerly a senior editor at the New Republic and an executive editor of the American Prospect. He's the author of Sick, the Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price and the Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. And his latest article at the Huffington Post is Republicans are spreading a new lie about Joe Biden's child care plan. So you mentioned New Jersey Jonathan as being the pharma capital a former Democratic senator Frank Lautenberg actually was an owner or a part owner of a of a pharmaceutical company so there you have it but in terms of what's going on now with this bill as much as we know of the details of in the bill back better plan the so-called social infrastructure 1.75 trillion bill that we're getting glimpses at what's in it it doesn't look very good in terms of helping the Democrats in 2022 in the midterms. It looks as if they won't get any benefit from much of what's in this bill in terms of you know, the, the constituents feeling good about what's just happened because they've delayed the implementation of so much of it. Uh, for example, the new $35 per month cap on insulin won't come into effect until 2023. Uh, the $2,000 cap for all out-of-pocket drug spending for seniors won't be implemented until 2024. And the lower prices of, of Medicare will negotiate with pharmaceutical companies for the most expensive drugs, that won't be available until 2025, with a full phase-in of that program in 2028. So what explains that? Why, why would you delay delivering so that you'd get the political benefit of the bill itself um,
1: it's the exact same explanation for why the bill was does so much less than originally wanted I mean the original version of this you know the original House bill uh, that they passed two years ago would have kicked in right away the, the reality was that these were the conditions put on the bill by people like cinema and it wasn't just cinema um, there were some other senators in the House of Representatives. You had Scott Peters, whose Southern California district has a lot of life sciences companies there. And, you know, they basically were not willing to sign on to a plan that made these changes right away, presumably because they figured that would give the pharmaceutical industry more time to plan for it, to plan around whatever new restrictions are in place. And, you know, maybe to undo them if they got a sufficiently friendly Congress. You know, and and that's just the political reality. Again, you can go through the entire Build Back Better legislation. Every single initiative in there is scaled back, compromised, full of concessions from where they started. And the question is, well, why did they make that decision? I'm going to tell you the answer to every single one is when you're passing legislation with this small a majority, it's you're not going to be able to do what you wanted to do if you're a progressive. And the only way to get the votes are to really scale back your ambitions in ways that, you know, are going to leave you with less progress. But, you know, less progress is still progress. And, you know, that's been the story throughout American history, even, you know, everything we think of as a significant historic reform was incomplete when it passed. It was scaled back and it was compromised. And it took years and years and years to build on it to make it what it is today. We've seen that most recently with the Affordable Care Act, which, of course, was full of these compromises. And it to me, this feels very similar to the end stages of that debate, when everybody was looking at the compromises and why does it takes so long for everything to kick in and why isn't it more generous and why didn't they make this change and the answer was they didn't have the votes well it's the same answer now
0: well but given the voter suppression that's going on now on you know it's quite comprehensive on various levels with gerrymandering meaning that the republicans are likely to take the house before one vote is cast and then election day there's all kinds of voter suppression going on, or will be going on, then various state legislatures controlled by Republicans then get to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they can overturn it. And there's also a lot of activity at the precinct level, where poll workers, traditionally neutral poll workers, are being harassed out of their jobs, and they're being replaced by partisans, somewhat like the cyber ninjas that did the bogus recount in Arizona. So This is a pretty bleak picture for the Democrats, I think, heading into 2022. So what would happen then if the Republicans take over the House and Senate? Could they undo this? In other words, I'm trying to understand the survival instinct of the Democrats. Like, you've got to deliver before 2022. Otherwise, you're going to get wiped out. And once you get wiped out, can they completely... Route the bill, even if even if it's full of delays. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who would argue that right now the Democratic Party faces I don't want to say an existential crisis, but a a a, a real crisis where between gerrymandering and election rigging, they could lose power, not just in the midterm, right, but 2024 and they never get it back. I mean, Republicans are are rigging the system to entrench themselves, right? I mean, they're they're, they're they they are a minor, they, they they are rigging the system so that they can continue to dominate power even as a minority party. And it's why there are so many people making the case that like you need to do voting rights reform. You need to get rid of gerrymandering. You need to do something about all these local elections where now you have these Trump allies in charge of precincts and counting votes and, 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 and everything you just mentioned. So, uh, you know, I think these are all very valid worries. Um, I, I, I do. I would say this that do remember um, if they let's assume Democrats get lose both one or both houses of Congress in the midterms, they won't be able to pass laws probably at that point. But it still takes a presidential signature to 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 change the law. So, if Republicans want to scale back, roll back, repeal anything in Build Back Better, if it passes, or the infrastructure bill, um, or anything else that the Democrats manage to pass, they actually are going to have to win both the White House and Congress, and then they're going to have to pass laws. And as we saw in 2017, that is easier said than done. I mean, remember when Trump won in 2016, Republicans took over Congress. Two days later, they said, we're going to repeal Obamacare and everyone thought they would and then they didn't because actually it turns out to be pretty difficult um but certainly it's a very real possibility they could, you know if they get power they can try to undo it all and they might to be honest with you given the the threat to basic democracy we face right now um i think that that's almost a secondary concern that right now you just have to ask yourself what is being done to save democracy Because as you were saying, I mean, there's just, for all the reasons you described, there's a very real possibility that Republicans get power in 2024. They are able to entrench themselves by, frankly, uh, making it possible for a minority party to rule, at least for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, just in closing, of course, the Affordable Care Act was saved by the famous thumbs down (laughs) gesture by John McCain. And there are no more John McCains in the Republican Party, not even his good friend, uh, Lindsey Graham. He's, he's changed his spots now. Uh, yeah, it's it's no. very much the Trump Party, is it not?
1: It, it, it very much is.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Um, as bleak as it is, um, <laughs> we can hope that something emerges here because it just feels to me, I don't know how, how you feel about it, but it feels like the Build Back Better bill in terms of the senate is just in limbo i just don't get the feeling that you know the liberal the progressives held it up for what three months in the house obviously tactically i don't know what they got out of that but their fear was that at the end of the day mansion and cinema won't even vote for it and that's still a possibility isn't
1: it uh it's Absolutely. Possibility. I, 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 I'm going to stick with what I've been saying since the very beginning of this debate, which is I think at the end of the day, they'll pass something. I think it's going to look more or less like the agreement. Now, there may be it may get scaled back a little further. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. But if you were asking me to bet money you know, that, that I, I, I think put it this way, even Joe Manchin, even Kirsten Cinema, they have incentive to pass something that they can call something significant. And the rest of the parties already come very far in their direction. Maybe they have to come a little further before this is all done. But, you know, you can see a path to it happening. But is it possible it falls apart? Absolutely possible. I mean, you know, who knows?
0: Well, Jonathan Kern, I thank you very much for joining us here today. All right. Well, thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Cohen, who's a senior correspondent at the Huffington Post, who was formerly a senior editor of the New Republic and an executive editor of the American Prospect. He's the author of Sick, The Untold Story of America's Healthcare Crisis and the People Who Pay the Price, and The Ten Year War, Obamacare, and the Unfinished Crusade of Universal Coverage. And his latest article at the Huffington Post is Republicans Are Spreading a New Lie About Joe Biden's Childcare Plan. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating the history of combating inflation and FDR's pairing of government and industry that could be replicated today. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy, and he is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan for Action and Renewal. And he has a three-part series of articles at Forbes, War on Inflation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett.
2: Hi, Ian. Great to be with you again. Thanks so much.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And inflation is really dogging President Biden, uh, among yeah. other things. On Monday, he's had the signing ceremony at the White House for the um, bipartisan infrastructure package, which mm-hmm. literally could have been signed three months ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know whether I can <laughs> ask you about <laughs> what you think about what Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and the, the squad achieved in the, by holding that up. So that's one question. But in general, the other thing that's dogging him, and by the way, his poll numbers for the Democrats and for Biden are just sinking like the Republicans have a double-digit lead in some polls nationally. So this really should alarm Democrats. But in any case, let's deal with inflation one of the biggest drivers, of course, is Biden can't necessarily control, and that is the Saudi crown prince, who mm-hmm. uh, is probably working for Trump and refuses to, as a swing producer, flood the market in order to bring down the price of oil, as Saudis have done for previous presidents, and mm-hmm. MBSs did for Trump. So give us the overall picture of the political consequences of inflation and what can be done, sure. and, then we'll, and then we'll get into your article.
2: Oh, yeah. No, happy to do that. So um, the Republicans, of course, are making great hay of this. Right. I mean, that was sort of the alarm that they were sounding alarmist Lee, uh, even back in January and February. Right. That all of the um, the actions that were being taken by the Fed and Treasury essentially to kind of put a floor under the economy while the pandemic continued um, was to the effect that, um, oh, this is going to be inflationary and uh, it's, it's crazy, it's runaway spending and so forth. And even some old uh, Clinton apparatchiks who are nominally Democrats got in on the act. You might recall that Larry Summers made some, uh, made some hay for a while um, making the same charge. Um, The problem with all of those claims back then, uh, and as it continues to be right now, uh, is that they're they're sort of looking at inflation as though it were strictly a monetary matter. In other words, as though it were entirely a matter of just how much money is being put out there. Um, through various compensatory programs and, uh, again, floor-providing programs um, taken by the Fed or, or, sorry, pursued by the Fed or by the Treasury. Um, What that ignores, of course, is the supply side of inflation, right? You you know the old adage that inflation is uh, supposedly too much money chasing too few goods. Um, And the fact that there's money referred to in that adage on the one hand and goods referred to on the other hand kind of gives you a clue that inflation is a relation, right? It's a relation between the quantity and velocity of money on the one hand and the quantity uh, of goods uh, and services that can be commanded by or purchased with that money. On the other, now we've all been hearing for a long time that there are s- significant supply chain holdups and bottlenecks and the like that have themselves been wrought by the COVID pandemic, right? Um, and in fact, uh, some colleagues and I, a couple of years ago, at the very beginning of the pandemic, in very late 2019 and early 2020, were you know sort of sounding the alarm that there's going to be a lot of supply difficulty coming up because. People People aren't able to work together and factories are shutting down and so forth uh, and so it was important that we do everything that we can to mobilize and jumpstart production and to enable production you know even in pandemic conditions few people seem to listen at the time and i think that that's the reason that we're now facing some inflation problems is it's essentially a supply side story but the good news is that that's addressable right through supply side um, uh, means, uh, and I think that the Biden administration is beginning to catch on to this. They're beginning to kind of realize that, and that that's the best way I think to combat the inflation charges that are being leveled by the Republicans opportunistically and to you know sort of uh, minimize the duration of this inherently temporary uh, bout with inflation that we're facing right now
0: so what then specifically, I mean, in your articles at Forbes on the war on inflation, you go through pre-World War II and post-World War II experience of the United States, mm-hmm. particularly going into World War II when it began in thirty-nine. Mm-hmm. how the United States military was slightly bigger <laughs> than that of Bulgaria, for God's oh, sake. And, of course, <laughs> the, by the end of the war, you know, the U.S. was the last man standing globally with mm-hmm. a massive arsenal of democracy Having been largely the deciding factor because not only did the u s provide the means by which the allies won the Western allies won, they also provided an enormous amount of help to the Soviet Union as well mm-hmm. so that's an extraordinary story how Give us the reasons why you think there's an analogy there between the conditions then and conditions today?
2: sure um so i think the the reasons are several but the 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 basic story here uh, is that you know it became immediately apparent in 39 and 40 um, that there was going to be, you know, significant existential threat out there in the world as the Nazis began to sort of, um, you know, uh, invade other countries and and make clear that that was the plan uh, for other countries that they hadn't invaded yet. Uh, and as the Japanese, of course, uh, were increasingly sort of um, menacing, well, they were already in China, of course, already invading China, uh, but were menacing other um, parts of Asia as well. Um, and, you know, President Roosevelt kind of took a look um, at sort of what the state of production was in this country and, you know, we were producing something like 3,000 planes per year, <laughs> which was you know, pretty, I think I mentioned in, the, in that one article that the, um, the, um, the, uh, airplane industry was actually smaller than the candy and confections industry at the time. And what they realized is, look, we have to jumpstart production massively. I mean, not just sort of increase it by double or triple or whatever, but we have to magnify it by orders of magnitude, you know, by, by a hundred or a thousand. Um, and so the, the The name of the game was speed they had to act very quickly um, and this is the the upshot of what they came up with is i think one of the most extraordinary stories of public private uh, collaboration in all of human history where you had the federal government actually building factories and leasing them to companies uh, and contracting with companies essentially to sort of basically gear up for mass production of uh, you know bombers tanks military vehicles. Munitions, uh, all sorts of war material. The, one of the most interesting stories was was rubber. You know, there there was no synthetic rubber industry at all at the time, and we got all of our rubber from Southeast Asia. That supply was sort of um, you know suddenly nothing uh, when the Japanese inconveniently um, invaded Southeast Asia, and so we had to you know, but we needed rubber right for so many uh, military uh, needs, and so the government just created an industry of synthetic rubber manufacturing. Uh, It founded a federal corporation uh, called the Rubber Reserve Company put lots of money, not just into the research and the development, but more importantly, into the rapid um, scale up of production, so that in virtually, you know, within a year or so, we were manufacturing more synthetic rubber than there had been rubber of any kind in the entire world. And I think we've kind of forgotten um, our own capacity to act quickly uh, to deal with supply problems of this kind. um, If only the public and the private sector, again, collaborate. And I I should not fail to note that, you know, private sector industrialists were very helpful in in this effort as well, right? I mean, President Roosevelt called the greatest industrialists of the day, William Knudsen, who was the head of General Motors, um, uh, Henry Kaiser, best known now for the health plan, but who at the time was a great industrialist, Um, people from General Motors, people from Ford, people from Chrysler, people from International Harvester. I mean, pretty much every large company under the sun, General Electric, they all uh, were there in the White House, putting together these massive production plans that they had to kind of get in effect quickly. And my own argument, uh, it, it seems to me, is that we're basically confronting the same sort of situation now, except that this time, thank heavens, rather than it be, than it being a world war or a war with um, another country, uh, it's a war, first of all, on inflation, on short supply. Um, and it's a war on, you know, climate change, for that matter, right? Because the big industries of tomorrow are going to be the ones that are renewable and that are planet saving. Um, and these are industries where the United States was highly innovative in creating the technologies that are used in those industries. But as, as usual, right, we're really bad at scaling up and commercializing this stuff. And um, here's another way in which we can, you know, basically um, replicate, I think, the Second World War mobilization uh, to have a big presence in the industries of tomorrow while we're addressing the inflation problem of today.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy, and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve and Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan for Action and Renewal. And he has a three-part series of articles at Forbes, War on Inflation. So, again, the analogies with today of course, we don't have FDR in the White House. (laughs) Not that I'm casting dispersions on Biden, but Biden has a very, very razor-thin majority, whereas FDR had massive majorities in the House and Senate. But I guess the other point is that uh, look how difficult it's been for Biden to get anything done in terms of of getting a public-private partnership together and getting the stimulus bills needed and You know, on Monday, he signed the bipartisan one, which in many ways was a very Republican-friendly bill. Broadband, for example, the big telecoms ran the table on that, and they got everything they wanted. Not Mm -hmm. necessarily the best for the American people. Uh, And then you've got this other social infrastructure bill languishing. We don't even know this is ever going to get passed. So Mm -hmm. how does Biden do even a fraction of what FDR did?
2: Yeah, a really great question. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, there are a couple of things here. Um, first of all, I do think that some Republicans, at least the 12 who signed on to the infrastructure bill in the Senate, uh, and of course, the, what was it, 13, I think, who signed on in the House, um, at least there's a little bit of sanity remaining among some of these, um, uh, these some of these Republicans. Um, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's maybe worth maybe Biden should take note of something, uh, a particular event that occurred during Roosevelt's presidency. So, you know, there was a fair bit of Republican opposition uh, to Roosevelt during the New Deal before the war mobilization. That's to say that a lot of business um, uh, interests were very opposed to a lot of the pre-war New Deal programs. But as you noted, um, Roosevelt had significant majorities in both the House and Senate, at least at the front end of the New Deal. So he was able to kind of get these things through anyway. But it was growing increasingly difficult um, for him to get things through toward the end of the 1930s. Indeed, um, there was a move to balance the budget prematurely back in 1936. And that, of course, led to another a renewal of the Depression in 1937 and 38. But what really kind of pulled Republicans and Democrats more fully together um, at the end of the 30s was precisely the threat of war, right? The fact that there were external enemies that were sort of existentially threatening in the eyes of many, I think got some Republicans who had previously balked at everything Roosevelt wanted to do to sort of play ball, at least for a while. Now, one has to be really careful with an analogy to the present or between that time and the present, because I I don't want to be one of these people who encourages a cold war with China. Um, But, if we think more in terms of economic competition, it looks to me like some Republicans are themselves finally getting savvy about the fact that we're not really competing very well economically against China, and the reason for that is because China has a kind of state capitalism of a kind that used to be quite common here in the US, but that sort of disappeared since the Reagan period. But state capitalism is precisely the sort of arrangement where you have the public sector doing what it does best and the private sector doing what it does best in collaboration. So the private sector is really good at producing, but the public sector has to handle, provide all the sort of macroeconomic framework and the sort of the other, all the sort of rule setting and rule policing uh, sorts of measures uh, that uh, are sort of requisite to private industries being able to do what it does, but also the provision of adequate infrastructure, right, which includes not just roads and bridges um, and the like, but also things like healthcare and education and the like, right. This is another part of the World War II effort that's been forgotten, but you know, in addition to there being you know the uh, rubber rubber reserve company and the defense production board and all these other private, all these companies that were created by the federal government to build factories really rapidly and then lease them out to private companies to build planes and tanks and so forth. There was also a Defense Homes Corporation that was created by the federal government to build homes and neighborhoods quickly in the areas that new workers had to move to in order to work in the new shipyards and so forth, right? Um, And the the federal government provided um, new schools and education facilities and daycare facilities, again, in the neighborhoods that surrounded the new shipyards and the new factories like at River Rouge, um and, and and so forth, right? Um so all of these things that some Republicans now are claiming are not infrastructure were actually recognized during the Second World War mobilization to be infrastructure. So it's hardly a newfangled thing to suggest that they are. But nobody will see them as that unless we realize the scale of the effort that's necessary to be able really to compete with China. And I think some Republicans maybe will be able to get that at least. But the danger, again, is we don't want that to morph into a Cold War, right? That would be ridiculous and ugly. Um, So it puts me in a kind of an odd position, too, because on the On one hand, I want to sort of talk up the competition with China to get Republicans to pay attention. On the other hand, they don't want to give any aid and comfort to those who are, you know, sort of a new new sort of generation of cold warriors.
0: Well, just a sort of anecdote aside, you know, when you mentioned the government set up a housing corporation to, to build houses for defense workers here in Santa Monica, at Santa Monica Airport, where the Douglas plant used to be during World War II, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many of these houses that were built then mm-hmm. for the workers at douglas, and you know today they go for millions of dollars <laughs> so, but let me uh just finish up here though on on what you're talking about in terms of not a cold war competition with china but a but an economic competition. Mm-hmm. China has a lot of You point out in your article that they have a stranglehold on many of the critical inputs, both Mm -hmm. to our present biggest industries and to our industries of tomorrow, Mm -hmm. from rare earth metals through microchips and circuit boards to solar panels and batteries that power electric vehicles and Mm -hmm. store power along the national grids. Now, Mm -hmm. there's a critical shortage of chips now, and it's even affecting uh, car production in Detroit. Um, So there's obviously a place for the U.S. to... What do they do, give an injection into Silicon Valley?
2: Yeah, I think there. Um, this is. I think the chips industry is 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 an industry where the World War II analogy is especially fitting, especially powerful, right? So, um, the pro- We we still manufacture a good many, a uh, a good bit of the world supply of of microchips here, but it's only twelve percent, right? Which much much less than it needs to be, uh, and indeed the U.S. used to dominate the entirety of this market, right, until several until a couple of decades ago. Um, so, in a sense, what we have to do essentially is research store capacity again. The problem is it costs around $15 billion to uh, construct uh, an adequate microchip manufacturing facility now, right? It's become a very expensive proposition because the chips are just so much more sophisticated and the tools that are used to make them are so sophisticated and expensive. Now, look at what Congress did in the summer. It passed something called the CHIPS Act, uh, which dedicates uh, about $50 billion uh, to sort of helping with the chip industry. But if you think about that, that's like the total that's about three factories worth of public expenditure, which is not nearly enough. So it seems to me that what we ought to do is, again, do something like what we did during the Second World War, where we built literally hundreds of factories, hundreds, because there wasn't nearly the capacity to build what we had to build at the beginning of the war. So imagine if we were to build a new microchip uh, manufacturing facility in every region of the country uh, and furthermore what if we focused on regions that have you know chronic unemployment problems or that have been economically troubled for a long time so that we get a big booster and infusion of, of jobs and capital into those areas so, and then they're competing with one another to sort of outproduce one another so you might have one um, in Appalachia you might have another one in Cleveland or somewhere else in the Rust Belt um, you might have a couple down in the southwest although there are a couple of new ones being built down there now by Samsung on the one hand, and uh, TSMC from Taiwan on the other. Um, But then if you were building one up in the Northwest as well, every region of the country had uh, at least one or two of these facilities being built, uh, and the public sector was footing the bill, and then leased the factories out to the companies, which is exactly what we did during the Second World War. We built them, the public sector built all of the new factories and then leased them with an option to buy to the private sector companies that we needed to jumpstart produ- production, we could do exactly the same thing with microchips, and we could even become a global exporter of microchips. We could even be globally dominant again. And there's no more important input to modern products than microchips. They are to the current era what oil was to the 1970s, except the difference is that microchip manufacturing capacity is not the product of geological fate in the way that oil deposits are. So we could make that happen. That's all within our power if we just realize the size of the problem and then if we approach it with an appropriately scaled response which would essentially be a, a world war ii scale response and then if we did the same thing with electric vehicles with batteries with solar panels which we invented but then we just handed over to other countries to dominate the production of namely germany and china and did it with wind turbines and all of the other technologies of tomorrow well, this would just, you know, this would suddenly make America the manufacturing capital of the world again, uh, you know, all of the industries of tomorrow, which would be massively good, of course, for all of the people who are underpaid, who don't have living wages right now, massively good for the environment, massively good uh, for eliminating inflation as well, because again, the way you get rid of inflation, um, rather than, you know, you have two ways to do it. You can shut off the money pipeline, which is basically starving the patient, or you can just produce a ton more. Um, and that's, it seems to me, what we ought
0: to be doing right now so just in closing though do you have the kind of cooperation that fdr had with the major capitalists back in the early 40s do you have that today i mean just uh, earlier in the week elon musk <laughs> who's one of the richest people on the planet by the way mm-hmm. yeah. uh he's he trolled uh bernie sanders on twitter saying mm-hmm. i keep forgetting you're still alive sure. um And not exactly somebody that seems to be interested in a public-private partnership, or, or in his case, paying his fair share of taxes.
2: Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, um, As you as you might know, Ian, uh, Tesla is one of the major benefactors of what little um, American public investment we have done in the way of uh, with a view to sort of subsidizing the jumpstarting of new industries. Right. I mean, Tesla is actually kind of the answer to Solyndra when people sort of say, oh, you know, whenever the public sector tries to um, advance um, some new industry or whatever, you get a problem like Solyndra during Obama. But what people forget is that the same program um, that gave us. Solyndra also gave us Tesla, so I think you know maybe the people like Mr. Musk and certainly people like Eric Schmidt and people like maybe even Bill Gates, a lot of other tech folk i don 't put a lot of hope in Mark Zuckerberg, but some of the folk in the in the sort of high end industry I think if they were asked um, to sort of take on advisory roles in the way that people like William Knudsen and Henry Kaiser did during the Roosevelt years they might actually get on board. Um, They might end up becoming more public spirited. My guess is that Musk is probably just ticked off because he thinks Bernie wants to take his money. But if he were actually asked to, you know, give us the benefit of his expertise um, and show a willingness actually to... Um, lever up the production of Teslas, if we were to give him, um, you know, if we were to lease to him much more factory capacity and much more in the way of uh, essential materials that go into the production of Teslas, he might actually be interested in that proposition.
0: Well, Robert Hockett, uh, we should stay on top of this story. So I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: Of course, my friend, anytime. Thanks so much.
0: And again, I'm going speaking with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, and Financing the Green New Deal, a Plan of Action and Renewal. And he has a three-part series of articles at Forbes, War on Inflation. We're going to take a brief station break. Then, with Beto O'Rourke entering the governor's race in Texas, we'll discuss what it will take for the Democrats to overcome gerrymandering and voter suppression in the Lone Star State that is trending blue.
3: Work it, make it, do it, makes us Honor, better, faster, stronger
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matt Engel, who directs the Texas Democratic Trust and the Lone Star Project, a political action committee that aims to be an aggressive fact-checker on the Republican Party, both at the state and national levels. Matt Engel has served as Executive Director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and from 2000 to 2004, he was Executive Director of the House Democratic Caucus. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matt Engel. Hi, Ian. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And a few days ago, Beto O'Rourke announced his bid for the governorship in Texas. And, you know, he came close in his race against Ted Cruz. But obviously, there's been massive amounts of voter suppression going on in Texas since then. And I'm just wondering, how much of an uphill climb is it going to be for Beto O'Rourke? Well, it's
4: always... It's always an uphill climb in Texas. The truth of the matter is that Democrats have been dealing with voter suppression uh, for most of the modern era. And so uh, you take that as a given going in. The Republicans have held power in Texas for 30 years. and The big part of that is they're doing everything possible to discourage and to prevent uh, primarily uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians from voting, but anybody that they think that is not going to bend to their will. But i'm very positive and feel really good about Beto getting into the race. Uh, it was the worst kept secret ever we've known for for weeks and months that he was going to get in, and he was probably smart to wait for a while because it kept uh, the Republicans from just being able to start their negative ad campaign early and uh, and so now he's prepared and ready to deal with it. Beto is a smart positive brave campaigner, and that contrasts really well with Greg Abbott, who has been a very weak, failed, and fearful governor. But
0: the other aspect, though, along with voter suppression, is redistricting, and there's already been redistricting. uh, Democrats lost his seat, Representative Ryan Gillum, and he's decided to become a Republican.
4: Well, uh that doesn't surprise me either. Uh Ryan uh, often voted with the Republicans anyway. Uh but nobody should think though that uh that his district is somehow now a Hispanic Republican district. What they did when they gerrymandered his district was they actually included uh some Anglo voters in it. So that district is inc- is uh controlled by Anglos and I think Ryan's is going to have a very hard time winning the Republican primary. The history in Texas has been that when Hispanics switch parties and then try to run, they lose in the primary, uh, usually to a white Republican. And that's the fate that could befall Ryan. Um, it, there's no secret that the Republicans intended to racially gerrymander in Texas. And it was I wish that Congress and I wish that President Biden had passed the John Lewis voting rights extension. If they had done that, then you would have had preclearance and you wouldn't have had these maps go into effect right away. But that hadn't happened. And so we're having to deal with racially gerrymandered districts. And Governor Abbott
0: has a pretty substantial campaign war chest of $55 million in cash on hand. And in October, he released an online ad against Beto O'Rourke titled Wrong Way O'Rourke, where uh, he shows a clip of Beto O'Rourke telling voters, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15s, your AK-47s. Now, that, I understand, does not play well in Texas.
4: Well, certainly in Texas, you've got a lot of support for gun rights and a lot of support for the Second Amendment. Uh, And if that ends up being what this campaign is about, then Beto won't do well. But it's uh, the job of Beto and everybody else to make this about Greg Abbott's sorry record. Greg Abbott has traveled across the state of Texas every time there's been a shooting, and he has promised uh, the local people there that they would pass red flag laws and that they would do the right thing to get guns out of the hands of criminals He reneged on every single one of those promises, uh, hasn't delivered it all, and instead he supported a new law in Texas that allows anyone to openly carry a handgun, whether they've had any training or any permit or anything else. And so what it really comes down to is not the position on guns, it's whether or not they're honest. And what we found is that Beto O'Rourke will tell you the truth, look in your eye, and tell you what he thinks, whereas Greg Abbott will do the same thing, look you in the eye and lie to you. And uh, it's uh, Abbott's tendency to collapse to the most extreme voices within his party. Again, it's, it's uh, uh, a, uh, a posture of weakness and not of strength, and I think that's going to be the real uh, difference here, that Beto is a strong, positive force running against a negative and fearful force.
0: But there could be a spoiler in the form of the actor Matthew McConaughey, who says he's interested in running in his native state of Texas. But he hasn't said whether he'd run as a Republican or a Democrat. And clearly, it would be better for Beto if he ran as a Republican, right?
4: Well, I don't know, Matthew He, I don't know what he's going to do, but I doubt that he runs. I think he's had fun with all the speculation. Uh, I think that uh, uh, he's probably liked the attention But it's clear that he hadn't given a lot of thought to any of the real issues that are out there and really doesn't have himself a sense of whether he's a Democrat or Republican. So I don't know that he won't run, but I'll be surprised if he does. So
0: what are the chances then of the Republican operative uh, who worked for the Bush administrations, both Bush administrations, I think, uh, Matthew Dowd? He's now running for lieutenant governor. As a Democrat, and my understanding is that the lieutenant governor in Texas actually, in many ways, has more authority than the governor himself. So it's obviously a key position, and you've got that sort of right-wing talk show host as the incumbent, who is, you know, one of the most sort of reckless. He he even makes Abbott look like a, uh, you know, a a liberal. (laughs) Oh
4: well, the truth the truth of the matter is that the Republican lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick. He's really a much stronger force uh, than Greg Abbott within the Republican Party. Uh, a lot of what Abbott does is in reaction to and in fearful reaction to, uh, uh, to Dan Patrick. Now, uh, uh, but Patrick also, though, from the standpoint of anything substantive is just reactionary. I mean, it, it, it's it's it's. Uh, galling to a lot of us uh, in Texas because he's not even a Texan. He's a guy who grew up in Maryland, uh, but he tries to uh, pr- pretend that he was uh, that he carries Texas values. It's really just an extreme uh, point of view. Now Matthew Dowd is somebody I've known a long time, and uh, when I first got involved in politics, he was a Democratic staffer for former Senator Lloyd Benson, and like some other Texans, that during the Bush years. Uh, when when the Bush family was really seen as as moderate Texas uh, Republicans. There are a number of people that went over and helped the Bush family. Matthew Dowd went over and worked with them for a while. But the extreme nature of the Republican Party since then has really brought Matthew and a lot of other people in Texas back as Democrats. Uh, the truth of the matter is that George W. Bush couldn't get elected to office in Texas now, given the state of the Republican Party. And so uh, I welcome Matthew Dowd back. I know that I expect him to run a tough race. He could win the nomination if he does. I think he will be a a strong uh, uh, opponent to Dan Patrick. And in Texas, if we aren't willing to uh, consider and embrace people that used to be Republicans, then we're going to be in trouble because we need a lot of people uh, uh, to change their mind and move over and decide that Democrats reflect more the mainstream point of view in Texas than Republicans
0: do. Well, Matt Engel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Matt Engel, who directs the Texas Democratic Trust and the Lone Star Project, a political action committee that aims to be an aggressive fact checker on the Republican Party both at the state and national levels. And Matt Engel has served as an executive director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and from 2000 to 2004, he was the executive director of the House Democratic Caucus. This has been Background Briefing, I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/donate, where you will find our nonprofit. Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Took the
3: kids to the and disappeared.